Talking DLD. Developmental language disorder. One in 14. DLD. The DLD project. The Talking DLD podcast. Brought to you by the DLD project. Welcome to uh, this episode of the Talking DLD podcast. I am so excited to actually be doing a live podcast. Not just a live podcast with somebody local, but some international friends. With me, I've got uh, Dr. Trina Spencer and Dr. Doug Peterson. Welcome. Hello. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. I feel like um, we've been hanging out for months now, even though it's been two separate trips to the States. Um, Maybe as ways of uh, introductions or introducing you to our audience, maybe I might throw to you, Trina, first to explain what your uh, who you are and what your connection to DLD is and then throw to Doug. How does that sound? Okay, that's good. All right. Um, I'm Trina Spencer. I'm a researcher, but a former preschool teacher, school psychologist, and I do child language research. And kind of my connection to DLD is as a school psychologist, um, I didn't know anything about language, yet I considered myself a literacy person, which was <laughs> obviously problematic, right? And when it hit me in the schools that I didn't fully understand literacy, I was like, I got to go back to school. I tried to do a speech language pathology uh, doctoral program, but I ended up in a disability disciplines program, which was just as good as very interdisciplinary. Um, that's where I met Doug. But to, back to the DLD, it's kind of been my career to make sure language is not just not forgotten, but that language is takes a center stage in literacy development, assessment, um, promotion, education, everything. And of course that leads us to those kiddos who really truly have a language learning disability. Um, but there's a lot more kids than just those kids, you know, the one out of 14 have an actual disability, but there's a lot other kids that I want to make sure that we are attending to and making sure teachers, school psychologists, administrators understand the value and the importance of oral language development in literacy success and, of course, academic achievement broadly. Awesome. Doug, I had a little bit of a segue into how you guys met, but tell us about you. Yes, so I'm a professor at the University of Wyoming, um, and I I do want to acknowledge the endowment there from Maggie and Dick Scarlett, which is just so generous, which provided my position there. Um, And yeah, I I was a speech-language pathologist for several years, worked in the schools across three different states, um, and it was my experiences in the schools that that uh, that really built the foundation and the impetus and the drive to go back and get a PhD and do research specifically to help children with, with DLD and many, many other children that need help with um, being successful in school. And uh, I think my connections with DLD go way back. I mean, they go way, way back, but we could just start as a speech language pathologist. Um, identifying and, and, and noticing so many children who were identified as needing special services or special education where that probably wasn't actually the case. They didn't really have a disability. And I started to become very impassioned and motivated to try to really identify those children who really did need intensive support and those who had a disability and to also provide help to children who who didn't have a disability, but uh, not provide labels where they're not needed or 
inappropriate. So that was sort of the beginning thoughts of, I, I really want to try to distinguish difference from disorder, if you will, and, yeah. and uh, help identify those children with DLD. Great questions to be asking and thinking about as we're moving forward as well is that, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, is you know, supporting the language development that those who their brain just develops differently, but those, it depends on their circumstances and situations as well. So we are going to get there, I promise. Yeah. <laughs> so you've both got amazing connections to thinking about language and the work that we do, um, but you're really well known for a few particular things, one of which is the Cube Narrative Assessment, as well as the Story Champs resource. The Story Champs resource, and uh, you've been doing some training here in Australia over the last couple of days, but can you tell our listeners a little bit about the program? And I know you've both got amazing contributions into both, so happy to start wherever. Start with assessment. Go start with assessment? Sure. Let's do it. Yeah, well, so, uh, so Shreen and I, as she mentioned, we met um, at Utah State University and we were in the, the disability disciplines program. And um, we really connected on this idea that oral language is incredibly foundational to literacy, obviously, and to academic success, but then it has clearly oral language uh, as influences and, and uh, outcomes for many, many facets of life. But that, that sort of really um, gelled us together and we, I, I, okay, hold on, I'm going to help you. For my <laughs> dissertation, I wanted to do an oral language intervention, but there were no outcome measures for it. Yeah, that, well, that's where I was getting. Yeah, so we, we started oh, working, okay, yeah, so we started working together and, and we just both recognized oral language was so crucial. And we came at it from two very different perspectives in a way. Uh, we didn't even know we were speaking the same language when we met. Yeah. Well, we weren't speaking, we weren't the, speaking same the same language. language. <laughs> we, we, we were speaking the same content. The same totally content. different languages or different dialects about them. Yeah. Well, I didn't mention before, I'm also a behavior analyst, yeah. right? And the behavior analyst, yeah. school psychologist, but I worked with SLPs all through my um, practice years. And he worked with school psychologists and behavior analysts to some degree, right? right. But so. really the cube or the NLM listening came about as a result of needing to study the effects of an oral language intervention, which was obviously needed in our schools. Right, and we wanted to monitor progress yeah. over time because this was a multiple baseline design study that you, that yeah. you were doing, right? So, uh, I mean, yeah, I, and we really need to give some credit, of course, to um, Ron Gillum, also who sort of identified how we we obviously developed this tool, um, but he recognized how pot its potential. I think, and and maybe we would have already known that, but he certainly did help bring awareness to it to us. So so, anyways, yeah. So the 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 cube started with the narrative language measures. That was what it started with and what was um, driving us to try to measure language over time and to do it efficiently and validly and reliably. And, and that, was, that was quite a task to put together mm -hmm. parallel forms that would allow yeah. us to do that. Sorry, I was just going to say those characteristics that he just labeled or listed there are the characteristics of general outcome measurement or curriculum-based measurement. And they're very important to be able to monitor progress over time validly and reliably. And that's that was kind of the standard format of tools being used in schools. And also the reason why nobody was measuring language in schools, because that was the criteria 
to which everybody was judging oral language assessments yes. and they didn't exist. So we took on the insane task uh, of bunch. creating such a thing. Yeah, something that's yeah. easy to administer, easy to score, that's reliable, that's valid, all, all of those things. And when it comes to oral language, validity, I mean, I don't know that anyone would argue that collecting a language sample is most likely a, a valid approach to measuring language or to at least a first step in measuring language. So we did hone in on narrative language because oral narrative language um, really requires the use of more complex academic language, which is truly what is needed to be able to be successful in reading comprehension and in writing. So, uh, so all of those ingredients are meshed together and we tried to create this process where you could actually collect a language sample in a very quick, efficient way, and not just the speech language <clears throat> pathologist, not just for children with DLD, who we love, of course, but really to collect language samples for everyone so you can see who needs additional support for language. So that's where the CUBE started. Now the CUBE is in its, thir its third revision, and it has um, word recognition, decoding strands, as well as oral language. It has subcomponents of dynamic assessment in it as well. So there's there's a lot that's grown out of the queue, but it's all based on really the simple view of reading, Hollis Scarborough's work with the reading rope model, um, all with the all with the idea of trying to um, identify children who need additional help and monitor progress over time. Those are really the two primary purposes of and age age range or grade range you haven't mentioned that so from like preschool all the way up to eighth grade now we yeah. started with like a preschool version but we soon realized the schools actually needed it all the way through the elementary and then over the years everyone gets, keeps asking us well do you have this for like middle schoolers you know or older upper elementary so the new cube three version goes up to eighth grade now yeah, and I don't feel like I've really painted, sorry, I don't feel like I've really painted the, like the driving purpose behind it. And it, it just truly was that for young children, oral language is just simply not measured and in if, the schools. And if we don't test it, we don't teach it. Yes. And, and so, so that's why I, that's why I was thinking assessment first is we must have, must have assessment. Otherwise there's no accountability for teaching oral language or language generally. Yeah. So, yeah. So you'll have a lot of teachers who are very aware of the um, phonemic awareness of their children or their ability to decode words or identify particular irregular words or what have you. They, they get they they have that as those assessment tools and they monitor the children over time. And you if you go into a first grade classroom or a kindergarten classroom and ask the teachers, how are your kids doing on reading? That's what they'll tell you. Well, this, this is the correct number of words they can read in one minute. This is their phonemic awareness. Here's their, you know, et cetera. But um, the, whole, the whole oral language piece, which is so crucial to reading, right? It is one half of the equation, really, at least at least one half of the equation. <laughs> but oral <laughs> language is 70% of the variance yeah. in reading comprehension. In second grade yeah so it's not just half yeah right it's huge. it's huge and we need that oral language to even to be able to recognize the words that we read yeah so that's that's kind of what started the cubed and where it's at now that's where it's at and i love that um particularly listening to you 
uh, talk at our workshop, um, A, love the fact that things were color-coded against your own version of the reading rope that sung to my soul <laughs> in a yes. very deep that's, way. That, that, that's me and his wife, uh, <laughs> Olivia. We, yeah. we, we work on those coloring schemes. Yeah, I love it. And so, but looking at that reminder, and I think something you said about the fact that we focus on the decoding, but there was nothing there for the oral language for people. And oral language is so important to everything we do uh, in schools. I mean, that's basically my whole PhD topic is how much does communication impact on your schooling and a lot. Um, But when we talk about it, how do we actually enable people who are at the coalface with these kids every single day to have those tools. So that's what I, I mean, that's what I loved about it. So I'm going to throw to you now, Trina, to talk about story chance, yeah. if that's all right, because <laughs> I can see there, you know, ready to go. I know, I I was ready to go and I was like, oh, I hope you don't forget about that. Of because, course not. Yeah. Tell yeah. us how story chance came about. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So story chance, interestingly. Um, okay. The first year of our PhD program, um, I recruited Doug to help me with an intervention study and I didn't know what to teach. Ultimately, Doug taught me how to do a language sample and we identified some um, linguistic targets of what I could teach, which blew my mind because I had no idea what those things were, right? I was really restricted to like teaching requests, like communicative functions, requests and labels, answering questions, these kinds of things, which is what behavior analysts really get a lot of uh, teaching about. But this this particular child needed complex linguistic sentence structures, you know, exactly like (laughs) otherwise I'm just leaving her sounding weird, you know. And so he taught me like, oh, what to teach. And on the flip side, he recruited me to help him with a single case design study and multiple baseline design and also help deliver the narrative intervention. And he was using, you know, some children's storybooks and he had kind of a protocol that he had used somewhat. It was a draft of a protocol. I don't know, a little informal, but it was a protocol that he had used as a SLP in schools. And um I was reading it and he was like kind of teaching it to me and I was reading it and I was absorbing it. And I asked him, um, any chance I can make some revisions? And he was gracious enough to let me do that. And I just moved some of the procedures around a little bit and sequenced it so that there was like some really nice scaffolding in a, in, and you know, a more gradual progression. And he looks at it and goes, Oh, this is good. So we ended up using that protocol in that first study. Um, very drafty, right? But maybe two years later, I ended up creating stories to be able to do a narrative intervention because that particular study, we it worked great. It was great. You know, it's published. Doug is the first author of that study. But there were some kind of like drawbacks or things that we wanted to do differently. And I remember sitting in my um, kitchen counter and we're sitting here talking through that of what it would look like if we could start from scratch, right? What would this look like? And we ended up creating 12 stories to be able to use um, for instruction. And we thought we were going to use storybooks. And then we decided, no, that's way too much effort to like try to get them to fit. So we wrote the stories. We had his wife illustrate we designed some, you know, like prompting tools, the visual, the icons, you know, and use that original protocol kind of, you know, refined it a little bit. And that was my dissertation study. And we used, so the very first version of the NLM listening for preschool and the very first version of Story Chance. And it didn't have a name when we were doing that study. 
And uh, Doug also was one of my interventionists for my dissertation study. And um, we would kind of take turns delivering the intervention. And one day towards the end of the study, I asked the kids, I said, this, this game needs a name. What should we call it? You know, and just kind of like the kids were just thrown out funny names, you know, and out came champions. We're champions. I was like, yeah, you're like story champs. And they're like, yes, I'm a story champ. And so the kids named it and it has stuck story champs. Yeah. It is. So. Yeah. And there's some, there's some background even before all of that. So like I, I uh, got my bachelor's degree and my master's degree, some of my master's degree from Utah state university mm-hmm. and Carol strong was there. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd also read a lot with Carol Westby, a lot yeah. from Carol Westby and Carol strong used to always say to us, children first talk like talking, then they learn to talk like books. And she just, planted this seed and this idea in all of our minds that we need to help children learn to talk like books and you can talk like a book by telling stories that is what promotes storytelling so right out of the bat right when I started working in the schools I started doing this this really not very great you know well-designed narrative intervention approach you know you you know more you do yeah yeah yeah, you know better better, right Yeah. So, so that, so, so that's what I kind of came to the PhD with also, like, I want to study how to do narrative language intervention. And so of course I, I, I worked with Ron Gillum, right. And, and Sandy Gillum. So, so that's where that sort of all built up to though. And so it had its roots all the way back to the most amazing pioneers, you know, Carol Westby, Judith Johnston, Carol Strong, those people. So, so anyways, now fast forward all the way, all the way to where Katrina's at now. Well, my contribution to Story Champs was really the instructional design, which comes from the science of behavior and learning, which at that point I had been studying for like, I don't know, 10, 15 years. That's Mm -hmm. what, that's what good behavior analysts do. Right. Um, And so when I looked at his protocol, I was like, oh, I think we can do this faster, better. You know what I mean? And he ended up really liking it. And that's, it just snowballed and we just got, we continued to do story champs work. We started with small group, then we did whole class, then we did one-on-one, we did it with preschool population, we did it with school age populations, we did it with kids with DLD, kids who are dual language learners or English learners. I mean, it just snowballed, right? And then we had both had some experience in schools in a multi-tiered system of support or response to intervention. As a school psychologist in New York, that's where I was, I w- we were some of the most progressive we did that in the early 2000s. And so really what we wanted to do was we would have constant conversations about what's the big picture here? Where are we really going? And we established like a joint research agenda. And our objective was to revolutionize the way education is handled and that we would put language at the core. And to be able to do that they needed to have proper assessments that put language alongside re- word recognition, and they needed to have proper uh, like instructional and intervention tools. And so Story Champs is a multi-tiered uh, program, and it's a it focuses on the promotion of oral academic language in the context of narratives, but it doesn't stop there. Lots of writing interventions, um, also informational, you know, like promotion or informational language or expository language. Um, It does a lot of things, vocabulary, complex sentence, discourse structures, inference training, uh, writing outcomes, reading comprehension outcomes. And I don't know how many studies do you think we have? Maybe 30? Yeah. We can't. Yeah. 
Oh, I don't think we can keep track yeah. anymore. But we have a lot more that aren't published. I know we're yeah. we're <laughs> we have to write. Yeah, our, we have right, isn't always that great, or or we it's just busy, right? Yeah, you have to totally. balance development work, partnership building, uh, training our our graduate students and undergrads, and publishing and writing grants. Yeah, there we go. Juggle. Yeah, and traveling to Australia. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> we've got a Vegemite shape sitting on the <laughs> table here. You well, well. Ease them into veggie mode. <laughs> we sure might try that afterward. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll see. You've talked a lot. There's a lot of words that we've used that our listeners uh, might be hearing us talk about, which is narratives. And I'd love if you could tell us, I guess, so we have a shared definition. Like when yeah. you talk about narratives, what do you mean? And what does it look like? You know, because, you know, people are often saying, you know, we've got these difficulties. But, you know, first of all, first part A, what, what, is, what are narratives? And then... If you were to look for these difficulties, what how might they represent? You, you want me to take first? the first part? I got A, you got B? Sure. All right. So a narrative is a monologic telling or retelling. And what I mean by monologic is like a single person is telling the entire piece of it. Now you can have co-telling that can does happen, you know, but generally speaking, the narrative is monologic. Like you have one author that writes a story or one person who's telling that story. So monologic telling, retelling of uh, specific events. Um, they're usually told in past tense. Um, they can be real or fantasy. And the form can be spoken, written, gestured through AAC, right? So there's the form or modality of that can vary. But that's generally what a narrative is. And oh, key characteristics are there are causal and temporal relations between the events. Okay, what do they look like when kids are struggling? Well, so, okay, what do they look like when kids are struggling? Uh, okay, so there's generally people divide narratives into two gross sections. So you have the structure, the narrative structure, and then you also have what they call the language complexity or the, the language that's that's kind of building up or, or built into the scaffold. So So you can actually have difficulty in one or both of those areas. So um, children who have developmental language disorder, for example, often have story grammar or story structure that's not as developed as their peers. So um, certain key parts of the story are often left out. Um, but now that's, that's just the structure. But then also uh, a narrative is, is just simply a, a way to communicate and you're using language to communicate. And so um, anything that you essentially would analyze in language, you can analyze in a narrative because it's clearly language, right? So any um, area that a child with developmental language disorder or language disorder or any, anything uh, has difficult. Can I scratch this? Sorry. Any, any area. <laughs> Hold on. Any. <clears throat> what am I trying to say? Any area of language um can be identified through narrative a narrative language sample and children with DLD often have difficulty with as I'm sure you've probably heard a million times in this podcast with verb tense agreement those sorts of things will be manifested through the narrative um and other difficulties with sometimes pronouns um uh, referencing, keeping track of the characters and who they're talking about that can be very difficult. Um, and then also just the general complexity of the sentences that children use. So as Trina just mentioned, there's temporal and causal 
or time and causality um, elements to a narrative that's what glues everything together. And um, we use more complex language to essentially produce those or to to, to um, relate those things, so subordinate clauses and things like that, which are more difficult often for children with DLD to produce. So, so those are things that you can identify pretty quickly and you can quantify, and then also you can apply uh, ways to change that, to do intervention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You, mind, you mind if I add like a definition of narrative intervention? Mm -hmm. right, we kind of talked about what a narrative is and that, um, it is complex because it's monologic, yeah. right? Because if you've only got a speaker and the listener hasn't experienced that same thing that the speaker is telling about, they have to use more complex language, right? So then in the narrative intervention, what we the, the goal here is to use the act of telling stories and retelling stories as the medium to focus on some language feature. And so in narrative intervention, it's simply just using oral storytelling, or it could be written storytelling as well, but using storytelling as, as the medium, but then the intervention is explicitly focuses on some aspect of language, which could be the complex sentences, could be grammatical, could be pronoun cohesion, whatever it is that that child has difficulty with, or the discourse level structures, like do they include a character and setting or a feeling with their problem, those kinds of things. But in that narrative intervention, what's great about narrative intervention is it's so flexible. All of those things are kind of obligatory in a story. So wherever a child is struggling, that interventionist can go, oh, here, let me help you with that. Say it like this, or let me give you another model or whatever it is. It's very easy to differentiate and to facilitate language practice at the exact piece that the child is not producing or struggling to produce. Okay. Yeah, and you're working on language in a very meaningful, in a very meaningful context, mm -hmm. right? So like it's everyone functional. tells, it's functional, everyone tells stories and, and they are also motivating, especially when they're personal stories, you tell stories about yourself, mm -hmm. you are not bored when you're talking about yourself. And so um, it, it, it's, it's a way to, to essentially do contextualize language intervention um, in its yeah, it's meaningful, functional. I've got two thoughts based off that. And that's the, the one of the key points is it is functional. We use storytelling, you know, you tell me stories and I almost use that as a moment to go like, do we have a shared experience? Mm -hmm. Like, do I want to hang out with you guys? Because that's how we connect with people. Yeah. You right. tell me something and I go, oh yeah, that's cool. I like that about you. I want to hear more about you. And it's when you hear stories and people sharing, you know, like, I'm not really gelling. Like, I, yeah. I don't really have anything in common, but like, that sounds interesting for you. You know, <laughs> you, it helps inform our social lives, yeah. you know, the people that we want to hang out with. But one of the things, the second thought is the thing that I love about working as a clinician um, around having these really functional approaches. I used to call it dipping down and I can't think of another way of describing it now. But when I saw Story Champs, I always felt like there was interventions that would focus on the story and then, you know, those parts of language and then I kind of would dip down into those bits that they were struggling with. Mm -hmm. But having the story meant that I was focusing on something holistic and it was interesting. But to sit there and go, I'm going to work on pronouns for 30 minutes oh, or, gosh. you know, oh, not my cup of tea, not the way I like to work. Yeah, but, but unfortunately, too many people do that exactly. in these isolated ways because that's the target or that's the skill that that particular child is struggling with. But that can be done in a very functional, fun 
motivating way. And you can do that within, and that's what I say, you know, I used to work on this macro structure or the, or the, the story and then dip down into those very specific skills because it was far more interesting to do it as a part of a story mm-hmm. than it is to sit there and drill with some sort of printable flashcard. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. So that's why, yeah, my, when you're talking, I'm thinking, oh, they're the two things like that function, but also being able to work on really specific mm-hmm. skills within something that's mm-hmm. helpful and the way that we actually relate to each other. Mm-hmm. Do, do you mind if I say it's not just that it's functional, mm-hmm. it's that when you put it in this integrated um, contextualized way, it actually impacts broader things. We're yes. not just improving narrative skills. Yeah we're improving literacy skills yeah. and not just now, but far reaching in the future. And we're not just improving literacy skills, we're improving social skills, giving children th- the skills and the tools, the repertoires they need to go out and engage with friends more confidently. You know, so that's what they do, peer-to-peer interactions. It's about telling stories. So kids who can't tell a story about their lives are kind of left out of those social, you know, yeah. Like they go to a birthday party. That's what the kids are talking about. I mean, that's what we talk about at dinner. Yeah. It was just story share, story share, story share. And we use the parts in which are relevant to you and to me to build to the next story. Oh yeah, that I, that happened to me too. This was how it was with me. And that's, that's normal social interaction. So narratives are, I call it the pivotal skill repertoire. Yeah right? It is the pivotal skill repertoire. We can build vocabulary, sentences, that discourse level, social, socially needed, academically needed. I mean, it's all around. It is that skill. You're segueing so beautifully into the next question. Oh, so I'm going to actually I didn't ask, mean to. Yeah, no, it's perfect because difficulties with storytelling can really impact on learning at school. And um, I'll, I'll just tell a little bit of a backstory for a paper that I, I had last year where we looked at um, including different academic achievements and people were like, why are you including narratives? Like we had like literacy, numeracy, um, you know, writing, spelling, and then narratives. And people were like, why are you working on narratives? And I'm like, well, because it's really important for academic achievement at school. Um, but we know that, um, in what, that it's really important to support the development, but what can we actually do to support the development? of children with DLD, we've touched on it a bit. Um, and perhaps if you can unpack some of the evidence behind it, because this is, a, you know, we love to talk about research on the podcast. Okay. Well, I mean, so first of all, I think that we, well, this is a new thought. At least I've never formulated this before. So I don't know how this is going to fresh, come out. Fresh news, guys. Well, I'm just thinking. All right, I'm ready to heckle. Well, we have really <laughs> done a disservice by labeling things like reading comprehension and writing um, and reading I think we have really obfuscated the role that language plays in all of those. I just don't, I wish that we could get rid of the word writing. I wish we could say that this is expressive language. Mm-hmm. It just happens to be, you know, in a written, in, form. In a written <laughs> form. And I wish we could say, this isn't reading comprehension. This is language comprehension. You're just comprehending something that's been written mm-hmm. instead of orally, yeah. you know, in the oral modality. So I, I feel like that would really, uh, just the, the the glass would not be opaque anymore. It'd be so clear how connected, not even connected, just literally how it is. Yeah. This is language we're talking about. We're not talking about some mm-hmm. separate construct over there. I don't know. You ready to haggle? What do you think? Yeah. No, I was just going to say, you criticize my little house, but <laughs> I like to use this metaphor. The listening and speaking is the foundation upon which the house of reading and writing are built. Mm-hmm. And if you try to put reading and writing without having adequate and proficient 
listening and speaking, you're not going to have a very stable house and it's going to take yeah. a dang long time, right? So yeah. listening and speaking feels like language, reading and writing, the world doesn't necessarily equate that to that. I wonder, That's how I, would... I wonder if we could take it further and say that it is, that language is the, the cake batter that's in the cake. <laughs> yeah. I like that one. Say, you, guys, you need to draw a picture because, you know, I have plenty of slides with pictures. It's cheating. Yeah. I draw my own pictures. <laughs> I think you guys, I'll get you a copy of um, Pam Snow's Language House. Yeah, we, so. do oh, know. we do. We, do. we don't. We know Pam Snow is very I've good. I've pulled that house apart a few times. I mean, like, here, we're talking yes, about Yes, of course bit. we know Pam Snow's <laughs> Language House. But this one is a simplified version. And actually, this particular house that we're talking about is published in um, The Reading Teacher in an article on classroom-based oral storytelling telling improves reading writing and social skills and to your question that entire article is written for gen ed classroom teachers Mm -hmm. for how to incorporate oral storytelling in everyday activities and why it's so important and um, there's a little piece about why um, storybook reading is not sufficient right of course it's necessary but it's not sufficient we can do more and we should be doing more oral still oral storytelling really gives a greater bang for the buck and that is our research of it it's hard to put like talk about specific and in those articles like the one i just described it's really a a review of the research Mm -hmm. and how putting it into practice for the teacher Mm -hmm. um but we we also, I don't know, you want to talk about specific studies? Well, I know where I was going to go with your question. It was oh. a little bit of an obnoxious. No, 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 no. I, I, it was, I think I had a bit of an obnoxious thought. Then I heckled too fast. I was uh-huh. like, you're no. the obnoxious part. Well, yeah. it was just sort of like, you are asking, what is the research evidence? Mm-hmm. I just want to retranslate your question. Yeah, mm-hmm. go for it. Like, what is the research evidence that language is what you need to understand language. That language is what you need to produce language. And I'm thinking, well, I don't know that anyone needs any research evidence that the construct is needed for the construct. You need language for language. And your point was that the problem is, is that we have called those constructs the wrong names. Right. Yeah. And therefore nobody knows that those are actually language. Yeah. yeah. So then the question yeah. is like- How do we- support language with language yeah Yeah. it does I agree with you it just seems silly to have to do that but the issue is that people don't know reading and writing language right and what a shock then what a shock that you do um you do a an oral language intervention with a child and then you go and measure their ability to produce oral language and somehow that actually works that translates and and whether you're doing it with you're teaching them how to talk like a book and then you measure their ability to write like a book and somehow magically that actually happens. Like you, mm-hmm. we thought at first when we were doing research, we thought maybe writing would be a bit of a, a distal outcome. We're doing oral narrative language intervention with children. And now let's measure writing and not even teach them how to write, but just <laughs> measure writing as an outcome. And I don't know why, because it's been it obfuscated because the words mix it up. We thought, oh, that might be a distal outcome. There's nothing distal about that at all. <laughs> it's the same. If the, yeah, it's the same thing. As long as the child can actually produce the, can write the letters, can transcribe, then, then, then there's the change. So he's, he's talking about a study we did many years ago, and we were kind of timid about publishing it. But by the time we did submit it, um, we had r- replicated that effect that teaching oral narrative language 
improves writing without teaching writing, right? Mm -hmm. That was the effect that we had uh, replicated it three times, but we still had reviewers who didn't believe us. They're like, yeah, but what did you do to teach writing? We're like, nothing. That's the point. And so we have at least three or four publications on this. So we often say like children cannot write what they cannot say. Yeah. So why are we pushing this writing when they can't say the stuff yet? Right. And we can get to writing for free. We don't have to teach them writing. We get there. We have to teach them to transcribe and handwrite the letters. Right. But the composition and that the organizational parts uh, and production parts of writing, you teach that through the oral language modality. Um, I was going to say one other thing about the research. Well, about- there have been some fabulous studies out there. Uh, surprisingly, oh. not a lot, though, but mm-hmm. some fabulous studies out there that um, that have shown that if you do oral language instruction, oral language intervention, you do get outcomes across all of the manifestations of language. Um, and sometimes it's a bit of a delayed effect. Oh, yeah, that was exactly where I was going to go. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Want, go ahead. So, the, so there's a couple. Yeah, a we, yeah I know. <laughs> it's exactly, that's exactly, we were thinking of the same research. Okay, so the Clark et al. 2010. This is a very landmark study to us. Okay. I remember exactly where I was sitting when I read that article. That's how important it is. So what they did, this is so, so important. They had three conditions. They had an oral language condition that had like a vocabulary and narrative focus. They had a text comprehension condition where they focused on reading comprehension um, strategies and, you know, like all through text. It was kind of the same narrative vocabulary through text, right? And then they had a combined condition. And at post-test, all three conditions had made gains, right? And the gains that you would expect. So there wasn't really any differentiation. And it was like a quite, not quite a year. Was it a year? Or it was a long, you know, very robust intervention in those three conditions. And so there weren't any differences in the gains between the three. But a year later, when they came back at a follow-up and tested one of those conditions was far, was statistically significantly different than the others. And it was the oral language condition, not even the combo of the condition, right? Of the two other interventions. So when Doug said it, there's a bit of a delayed effect and we were kind of like, wow, that's weird. Why wouldn't there be like an immediate benefit to the oral language intervention? And then my doc student and I, we just completed a study last year. We got the exact same results that at post-test, we had a moderate effect on proximal outcomes, but we didn't get an impact on distal outcomes like reading comprehension, right? Until eight months later. And we were like, wow. And we're seeing this and uh, like, I think there's little other pockets of it, but those are two examples. And do you want to interpret that? Or do you want me to go with what I'm thinking that it's about? Keep going. All right. So here's what we think that's about is that when we give them oral language, there's so much power and potency to it outside of those language interventions. But if we just give them text comprehension intervention, they can only use it in academic settings, mm-hmm. right? But in an oral language, we give them so much, so much expanded repertoire that it's useful for them when they're talking to their parents, to the grandparents, to their peers, their teachers. They use it broadly, right? Because at the core, everything has language, and as a result, it go. It's kind of like the the good keeps on going, 
right? And it takes a little bit longer for it to hit those like really broad, uh, multifaceted skills like reading comprehension, like years later, right? Whereas the other interventions going through a text modality, even though it's almost teaching it directly, I'm going to teach reading comprehension, which I have issues about that statement, because mm -hmm. I don't think you can teach reading comprehension. But, but anyway, if they go straight at it, you're getting an effect, but not one that's going to keep on going. Yeah. And it just uh, like just picking apart the words that you're yeah. using, you're using, not picking apart, but just like honing in on the words you're using, talking, talking all the time, mm -hmm. um, yeah. sharing. It's not, it is not, so narrative language intervention is not this sit back and listen to me tell you a story. You get to be the passive person who's, who's just hearing the story. It's all about production. And, and so you're essentially teaching someone to talk in a certain way, right? To, to communicate with more complex sentences and to com communicate with more complex story structure and so forth. More sophistication and more specification. Yeah. Yeah. You know, which so, requires sophisticated language features. Yeah. And the more you talk like that, the, the, the more proficient you get at talking like that. It's a snowball effect, yeah. right? And so that changes over time. And then, of course, that's foundational or even the batter, the cake batter of, of everything related to language, which is a lot. You can ask Teresa Ukrainitz what's related to language. She'll tell you just about everything. So, everything. Yeah. yeah. And we once had a conversation. Is there anything that we can't teach in the context of storytelling? And I don't think we came no. up with anything good. No, and I remember Sandy Gillum had that exact question. And yeah. she, in a conference, and she mm -hmm. thought for a second, and she's just like, no, oh. because it's language. Yeah. Thing. You guys are just nailing the next question. Oh, really? I'm just going to ask. I'm not even sure we answered your first question. No, yeah, no, you did, and I'm going to go straight into the next one because it sounds like like this is a podcast for people with DLD, their carers, the teachers, speeches, people that love them. But there's so much about what you're saying that is helpful for people that don't have DLD, and I know that a number of your studies look at you know all sorts of language learners. I think you're kind of nailing it, but why does working on narratives or storytelling help everyone? Like we've kind of said, is there anything else oh. you'd like to add to your oh. previous statement? So I, <laughs> one, one, of the, one of the things we could say is human thinking comes in the format of stories. Mm. So if, if, we're, if we are thinking and feeling and using story format to understand our lives, it's applicable to anybody and everybody, right? And there are a lot of other, there are a lot of children in this world who need oral language, oral academic language promotion, who don't have a language learning di disability. And so why not just use something that is highly flexible, motivating, socially appropriate, you know, differentiated, you know, approach. Well, and we all, can develop more complex language all of us no matter what our age that is something that can continue to grow and increase in complexity in our understanding and production of language so if you were to ask me who could benefit from language instruction language intervention well that would be everyone there is no i have yet to find harm in helping someone be able to express themselves with greater clarity with greater precision, not for the sake of complexity, not to do it so you're more complex, but simply because you can be more precise, use more vocabulary that's specific. 
And so what happens with um, with children in the schools if they don't receive explicit systematic language instruction, all children in the schools? Well, their language is going to be the same that they produce at home, the same that they produce in the community, and probably not the language that is expected of them to produce when they're writing or expected them to understand when they're reading, which is often expressed in a more complex way. So the majority of children in this country who struggle with reading are having difficulty with reading comprehension. And I mean, we're talking about a large percentage, right? We're talking about 60 to 80% of the children in, the, in Australia and in the United States are having difficulty understanding this dialect, this complex academic language dialect. I don't know if it's fair for me to call it that, but I am right now, okay? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, a, it's, it's called a, a register. A register. linguistics. Sure. Yeah, yeah, it's an so, academic register. Yeah, yeah it's, it's hard for them to understand that. And, and uh, what, would, what would resolve that problem? What would resolve that issue would be from a very young age, having children not just here, but also produce this register. Mm-hmm. right their brains are so plastic it's if you just surround them in that if you surrounded those children and just spoke like Shakespeare all day long that's mm-hmm. exactly how they're going to talk it's the same thing right so so I guess in in my view everyone could benefit from this mm-hmm. from yeah from language instruction and I just want to say that as adults, we are constantly going to like trainings and workshops to learn to become better storytellers so that we can perform in a TED talk, yeah. right? That's what TED talk is all about. Teaching us to be better storytellers. Think about marketing. It's all storytelling. It's like, what's our storyboard? Our entertainment is all storytelling, right? Um, fundraising, storytelling that triggers an emotion, right? This is everywhere, pervasive, pervasive. And the people who are successful in their careers, um, in life, in their relationships can tell stories, can be precise communicators, can express their emotions, have this emotional literacy, right? And I've been, you know, giving this quote left and right is that from Brene Brown, it's like, we are not thinking machines that feel, we are feeling machines that think. And the one of the primary purposes of storytelling is to relate emotionally ourselves to others and understanding theirs. And that's where we connect in a story. Whereas like exposition or content about science, we don't connect with that. There's no emotion there, right? Storytelling is life. And causality is so, so necessary to make a story to, to to embed in a story to understand well he was really sad or she was really sad and if you just leave it like that it's not a story you have to explain why 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 is someone feeling sad and you because you are able to just like you're talking about feelings you are able to make sense of your own feelings in life now I realize yeah, and you connect with your culture through storytelling too exactly. sorry I, I missed that no, in my yeah. my my rant <laughs> your thoughts your stream of consciousness yeah yeah but so, it's so so important it is and and you've honed in so much on like the social um emotional aspects of storytelling and we bring it back to academics i mean just think about um where we would be in our school system if our children could use this register fluently and understand it i i think uh I mean, it's, I don't want to over, 
I don't want to oversell language, but no, oh, no, please, please oversell language. I mean, it, a, <laughs> I've got a bias here, so I'll I, let you go. I'll let you run with it. Right, but it, I, I also feel like if we don't oversell it, the people who have been diminishing it are never going to understand how important it is. Yeah. So sometimes you have to be a little bit in your face, kind of, dude. Language is more important than you think, and this is not just something that kids with language learning disabilities need to know. That's right. Everyone does. That's right. And yeah. if you just keep focusing on word recognition, for example, and that's all you focus on, you think that academic language just spontaneously develops without any environmental pressure to produce it, then you will go, you'll, you'll go nowhere. You will not solve this quote unquote reading crisis that we have across the world. Hmm. It's, it's a language, it's a language issue for the most yeah. part. I think that links in exactly with, uh, I think it was 2021, the Raising Awareness of DLD campaign was, um, you know, it was like language, what is language, what is DLD, you know, that concept of if we don't think about, put language first, I mean, everyone to think about kids that struggle with language and, um, you know, we developed, uh, Dr. Charlotte Ford and I developed some materials around that for teachers to be like, there's no reason why a teacher in Australia shouldn't be able to access free training around, you know, DLD, but the, yeah. the majority of the chunk of it is just, language what is language <laughs> what is language and then it's nice to know what dld is and how to support them but actually can we just up, up skill and awareness around what language is so i don't think you can oversell it because um language is the primary modality for learning yeah yeah, yeah. learning life connecting everything yeah yeah so if uh, listeners to the podcast have heard me say this many many times so i apologize for people who have um but teachers and speech pathology is just like a match made in heaven. And I know that you've got a multidisciplinary, um, you know, strength to the work that you do. What can multidisciplinary teams do to best collaborate to support success for students, particularly with DLD, but all language learners? Well, first of all, I think recognize that we really all want the same thing and we may come at it with different words and different vocabulary, different, vocab and yeah. different trainings, but at the core, at the core in our hearts, I think we all want the same thing for, for our children. And, and if you build from that and recognize that, it becomes much easier to collaborate and understand we all have strengths and weaknesses that, or strengths, I should say, that we pull yeah. together. Um, that, and, and also recognizing that, that you just can't do it on your own in one little silo. Right. It, it, this really does require an entire system change, an entire collaboration across all individuals. Mm -hmm. So those are just my surface thoughts on, on that. I know you've, you've given it a lot of thought training. You've presented on that and topic. And I published on that topic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I do write on this quite a bit. Um, and I really have to express my gratitude to Doug because he's the absolute best teacher of this. You know, like we we spent a lot of time kind of arguing and kind of getting through what I would say are disciplinary centrism obstacles, right? So as professionals, we all get taught you're the, you're the most educated person. You get fed that you know more about this than everyone else. And you kind of like circle the wagon and this is my, you know, stick in your flag. This is my turf. And what happens, that's, that's called disciplinary centrism when we believe that professionals from our own profession or our own discipline are smarter and better trained and know more about a particular thing. So um, I experienced that as a behavior analyst, as a school psychologist, and then 
you know, to have a, a, an individual from another profession have their own disciplinary centrism, you put that together and you can get lots of sparks and not in a good way, like spark a wildfire, you know, and, and get it out of control. But when we recognize that we bring to that collaboration, a disciplinary centric uh, point of reference and frame of mind, then that's a start of cultural humility. And cultural humility can replace the di disciplinary centrism. Um, cultural humility is really just the recognition that you do not understand someone else's culture and um, that you have to uh, engage from a a position of learning and openness and it's about understanding your own biases and you have to reflect on your own like why am I making this recommendation why do I believe that why am I saying it this way you have to reflect on your own biases just to be open to the fact that they are biases and open to your colleagues contributions and um, we learned, Doug and I learned uh, something called cultural reciprocity, which is is really kind of like um, for kind of iterative ongoing action steps. It's like a way of interacting with someone who thinks differently than you. And we, while cultural reciprocity was originally, um, you know, Harry and Kalyanpur. Yeah, special education. Yeah, from special education was really originally designed to be for, like, professionals and families who come from different cultural backgrounds, you know, meaning ethnicity and race. Um, the definition of, of culture can include things like people from different political parties, um, like urban versus rural kind of upbringings, you know, some sort of religious mm -hmm. cultures, in, and then also disciplines and professions. And so like a speech language pathologist has a set of uh, language, you know, terms that they use, like ideas and behaviors that are really culturally derived from their training mm -hmm. and same behavior analysts, school psychologists, we all have that. And then when we try to work together, we're really talking, remember we talked about, we have different dialects, we yeah. have different languages talking, but our content's the same. So cultural reciprocity has these kind of like, you know, you've got to self-reflect, you know, validate that other, or, or listen, like you got to listen to somebody else's, you got to think about yourself, then you got to listen to somebody else's, then you validate those things. Mm -hmm. And then you figure out how to make compromises to get the thing, what he was saying before that we actually all have the child's best interest in mind. So if we just put our egos in our back pocket, we might do a better job when we can value what the other person and the other people in that uh, collaboration contribute. And yeah, it's a message that it, I didn't set out to talk about that, but I learned that through what are we 15 years now, yeah. Doug? Yeah. We've been arguing for 15 years. Yeah. We've been practicing cultural reciprocity for it, 15 it years. Had a robust discussion. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and it, it really did. And I, I know you've just, just barely said cultural reciprocity, but I, I just was reflecting while you were talking here about the impact that that had on us and our careers. That cultural reciprocity concept, asking yourself, why do I think the way I do? Mm. And then, and then seeking to understand, you know, and not to correct, but to truly understand why do you think the way you do and coming together. And, and you could see it modeled in, in, in Trina. She's an amazing partner because uh, I can come up with the, the most horrible ideas, right? But she gives me the safe <laughs> space to say something and she'll say, do it and let me see if there's something that I can pick apart and we can, but not to berate me, but to have yeah. a discussion. Mm -hmm. yeah. right to to seek understanding seek understanding yeah. yeah and I also think too that if, if you take it from a cultural lens 
it's never like I'm trying to convince you to think like me because that would be changing your culture. You know the same that's not the goal, right? It's to help the other person understand how I'm thinking about it. So like we use this frame like this is the story I'm making up about what you think about me right now. Yes. And he says, "Oh, actually my story is like this," right? And I just happened to read that in Brené Brown, she does that too, but like yeah. that's what Doug and I have always done. And when we come to a point where we disagree, the phrasing the you know like the frame is often um okay, like I, I'm hearing you, I'm not quite convinced, but I'm open to this discussion continuing, right? Or I'm open to it, or I'm, or I'll say, or one of us will say, well, this is what I'm thinking, but I'm open to being wrong. Do you see what I mean? And so you signal like this cultural humility. I, I'm going to stay in this conversation because I care enough about you. And I, and I trust that your, like your value or your motives are pure and we want what's best for kids and it doesn't matter if we have difference of opinions it's okay right we should that's what makes the world a happy place that we're different and you know colorful and all in harmony right we don't want everybody thinking alike because then no one is thinking exactly anyway part of the team though of course is we've talked about health professionals but parents and families Mm. so important and that's actually the impetus for so many of the stories that we tell are the things that don't just happen in my classroom or in my clinic room, they're actually happening with families. They play such an important role. Is there anything that families can be doing to support their child with storytelling at home? Oh, yeah. Yeah, tell... Oh, oh absolutely. Tell bedtime stories, Yeah. right? Tell stories that are culturally appropriate, you know? You can read the story, but you can tell the story also... Tell a story, make up stories while you're driving in the car, while you're giving your kids baths, you know, like anytime is story time. That's what I like about oral storytelling versus storybook reading. You don't really have to have like strong literacy skills to do that. You know, you can be funny. You can make it relevant to your kids. Sorry, Doug, I got, I got excited. No, <laughs> I mean, all of, those thing, all of those things. And, and, um, and then also encourage your children to tell stories. Right to to and to to genuinely seek understanding when they're telling a story, mm-hmm. to be interested in what they're interested in, to share that moment with them, and uh, in doing so, you will shape a better story from them. Naturally, it doesn't require any special training for you to be confused when your child is telling a story. You can just legitimately be very confused, mm-hmm. and you can share that with them, and it's not rude or inappropriate to do so. If Trina was telling me a story about someone and I didn't know who she was talking about, it would be okay for me to say, oh, wait, hold on a minute. Who are you talking about? Who's, who, who, who? Yeah, where were you? When was this? It's totally normal. Yeah. Yeah. And the other piece that I would say for parents is don't shy away from emotional conversations with young children. They need to learn emotional literacy. They need to learn it and it's best taught within a parent-child interaction. And that the younger the kids learn storytelling, the better protection they have from things like neglect and abuse, mm-hmm. um, because the children who get abused are the ones that can't tell a story about who abused them. Mm-hmm. And so that's a really important thing. I, I, I would be so sad if families stop telling stories because they think they're just supposed to read books to kids. Yeah. Of course, you should read books to kids if that's, you know, something that you have, or if you have books, you have the literacy skills to do it. But even if you don't have those things, you can do oral storytelling. Mm-hmm. And there's so many more benefits to it. And and let's not forget that children with developmental language disorder 
still learn language. Yes. And so um, that developmental language disorder is not some kind of, you know, complete roadblock in the development of oral language, right? And so parents with children with, with DLD can, can do these very same things and can expect language growth over time, which translates to a lot of other growth in many other areas, including academics. Absolutely. So lots of, everybody can be doing to support oral language. In your opinion, this is sort of bringing us, moving towards closing, okay. um, is what would you hope to see in the future for developmental language disorder, narratives, whether it's in the US or around the world, this can be research or clinical yeah. work or service provision. Like, what's your hopes and dreams? Man, you just opened a big box. Yeah. Wow. There you go. I don't know if I've dared to dream that big in a long time. <laughs> I know we used to. We uh, used to oh, paint the whole world. Like, this is do. what we want to do to change the world. Me too. Uh, I guess, I mean, I had, there's so many things. Like, I, as you were asking that question, I was like, this one, this one, this and this one. I'm, not, I'm just going to stick with this one. I think I chose one. Is I would like to see every teacher a language teacher. Mm -hmm. And if they understand that their job is really to teach language, then we're gonna identify kids with DLD better, right? Faster, be more preventative. I also think that we would be able to prevent literacy, you know, reading disabilities. And um, we would also probably see more multilingualism in the world because we would be promoting that from very young. Because by the way, we haven't said this, but lots of our research is on multilingual yeah. narrative yeah. interventions where we we can teach those narrative structures and kids move seamlessly between the languages that they're learning and they carry with them the, the language that they acquire in one language to the next. It's just really, really fascinating to see. But I think if, if we were to be able to achieve a dissemination and capacity building and support every teacher, especially pre-K, K, prep, you know, one, year one, two, to be language teachers, I think I would die happy. Yeah. I like the, I like how it's a realistic vision. Um, so there's just some things you can't change or very far outside of our power of changing in society and in the family. But we do, we, we can control the school system and what happens there. And we can I feel like we children. can influence we, the school system. Yeah, not control. Mm -hmm. I didn't mean, sorry. Yeah, that's so true. That's oh. a word you're always correcting good, me on. <laughs> no, yeah, good, good, good call. Good, good call, right? I, I don't mean control. I yeah, sort you, of meant, you mean influence. influence like we have a sphere you know? in which we have some at yeah. Least yeah. influence. Right. Yeah. Right. And so I, I think I'm with you there. And I, I would I would say, you know, actual true ballot assessment that identifies individuals who have the difficulty learning language, which is what DLD is. It's a language. I'm sorry, learning disability. And, and so identifying that and not not labeling children who are quote unquote, different in some way, but literally, literally truly a, a being able to identify through dynamic assessment or what have you, really valid. And then also um, recognizing all children can benefit from explicit language instruction and then applying that. And, and I mean, just think about, well, you talk about this all the time about the, the outcomes of individuals with DLD, where they end up in society, 
the prognosis, and so much of that can be averted and changed with the right application of, of intervention. So, uh, and that would affect, of course, individuals with DLD, but it would also affect so many people and so many children who will be given a choice in their life. They know how to read, they know how to write, and they can still choose to do anything they want, which may have nothing to do with reading, it may have nothing to do with writing, but if they choose to do something that requires that, they can do it. It just opens the world to them. So I think building that kind of world would be our dream. High quality language instruction for all. Mm -hmm. right? Just if everybody yeah. can access it, then it's gonna do no harm and it's gonna help everybody. Mm -hmm. Often part of the work that I'm thinking about is how do we provide instructions and supports for students, particularly because I'm interested in school-age kids, from foundational years to secondary years. And every time I come up with it, it's actually, these are things that are great for everyone. Mm -hmm. Let's just do it for everybody because it's not just for them, but it's because of these environments, not necessarily providing and supporting mm -hmm. and scaffolding. I don't, don't you think, don't we have a manuscript that's titled Good for All, Essential for Some? You can pinch that if you haven't, but yeah. <laughs> I think we do. There you go. I don't think it got published, though. I don't think it got accepted. It's in our, you know. Review pile. Yeah. With another day. Yeah, exactly. But it, as you were saying, I was like, yes, that's exactly, that's exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. It's not so. going to cause harm. Okay. Wrapping up, because I'm conscious of time. I'm sure they're going to boot us out of here soon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as we're drawing to a close, my, my last question is, at the DLD project, we really do try to focus on self-care and finding time to breathe in a very busy day. What do you both do to look after yourselves? I'm I the older I get, the more I think I come to understand myself better. And I I think that um I've been thinking about this question a little bit. I think that I seek exploration. That is what I seek to care for myself. You give yourself permission to explore? Yeah. You can explore what Take risks to to okay. explore new places and to do new things um usually re revolves around fishing yes so i was going to say surely fishing needs to be there. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah that, that i think is the real like if i were being selfish mm -hmm. it's about me what do i want yeah what would i do on a vacation mm -hmm. it would be scrambling up a stream where there are crocs to go fishing <laughs> Very true. <laughs> That's good. Props for you. Yeah. No. 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 So it's funny that you asked this question because I'm I have not very been very good at this. I have not given myself permission to care care for myself in most of my life, um, but this is a recent transformation, and I do have a very good self care routine. Um, I wake up early, like five a.m., mm -hmm. and I go for a walk, and I listen to really rowdy music. And really, I walk fast, I listen to rowdy music, and it's like, that's my Zen time. That's so funny that that's Zen to me, but it is like a rowdy, like good African beats, you know, yeah. some really nice R&B or rap is, you know, definitely in there. It's got to be rowdy music. And then the other thing that I do is I listen to a lot of audiobooks or read books mm -hmm. that are self-development, fall under that category. I, I used to just read novels and you know like for pleasure kind of stuff but I felt like I was I don't know I mean those are good too but like the Brene Brown books you know stuff on feminism um 
cultural stuff. I like to read books from that are written by authors from other countries. So I learned something about those countries. So it's something that's really going to develop me as an individual. I'm really so satisfied with that. And I'm constantly like sharing book recommendations with people. Um, so love it. Yeah. So if we were to sum up, I guess, today's chat, which has been very dense and lots we could say, huge amount of information in such a short space of time, what would be three things that you'd like our listeners to take away from today's podcast? Can you think of uh, just three? Language, language, language. It's no, the, I'm sorry. Language, language, uh, language. No, really. Uh, what One of them, I think for me, would be just an, a recognition of just how much language plays a role in our lives and recognizing how we tend to um, not recognize that and we need to bring it to the forefront. Absolutely. Do we get three shared? I think it's a three shared. Okay. If you can't agree on the third, then I'm happy to adjudicate. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Do you okay. want to go next, number two? Yeah, I think the other one is like, please don't underestimate what your colleagues know and can do for you yeah. and how much you've learned. I mean, it sounds really sappy almost, but like Doug and I absolutely love what we've learned from each other. And you can tell we would never give it up. We're, we're, we're friends for life. We're colleagues. We're partners for life. Right. Okay. Oh, me? okay. I just had to like double he's check. Nodding, he's he's nodding people. He's yeah. Nodding. Yeah. But, <laughs> but it's like you, you need people who think differently yeah. than you to check you, to yes. help you, to love you, to say, well, wait just a second. Did you just say that? Right. Tell me more. Or, you know, just like call you out on your, on your BS, yeah. you know, and there's nothing more valuable than that. I, I guess, do I get to do number three? I was going to say, you can I'm, bounce it off each other. I'm see how we go. thinking here that it could be to dare to dream. Yeah. To dare Definitely. to envision a world that 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 um maybe people are very scared to envision because it is so different from what we have i i would agree i would say think think bigger just always think bigger um i mean doug and i came from very small towns like very small towns we're some of the only educated people or people that left in our family left our hometowns that kind of thing and like we outgrew every phase of what we did because we could think big. And I think together we could think bigger. And I, we even remember, I, or I do, I'm going to say some of our first um, meetings that we had at the hub, which is on campus. It was like the, the lunch hangout for yes. our college. And, and he would say things, no, no, that's not enough. I want to change the world, you know? And I would be like, okay, all right, I'm going to change the world with you, but can we just be a little realistic by making like, you know, benchmark milestones along the way, you know? But yeah, think bigger and think bigger together. Nice. Well, thank you both so much for your time. This has been amazing. And I know that our listeners will get so much out of it. Thank you so, so much for talking to them. So thanks. How many times can I say thank you? Thank you. Thank, thank you. you for having <laughs> <laughs> It was, yeah, yeah, so much great. Thank you. Awesome. Gee, it's wonderful to have Trin and Doug on the Talking DLD podcast. And it was even more special to have them join us in Brisbane for their recent workshop. I always love to grab a quote out to recap. And this one from Doug I thought was really important. Let's not forget that children with DLD still learn language. DLD is not some kind of complete roadblock in the development of oral language. So parents of children with DLD can do these very same things and can expect 
language growth over time, which translates to a lot of other growth in many other areas, including academics. I think this is really important because, you know, Sean and I obviously check out the um, discussions happening in social media land. And one of the ones from parents we've seen lately is, you know what, is it worth investing in speech therapy if my child's got this lifelong uh, disability? Will they actually improve? And the answer is absolutely yes. So your investment is worthwhile. But what we do need to do, as Trina and Doug have explained so well, is we need to create language-rich environments. And we can all make that happen. So this week, your challenge is to think about how you can change the language environments where you live, work, and play. What discussions can you have this week? Who should you email? Who should you send this podcast episode on to? And also while you're there, don't forget to grab your tickets to the International Developmental Language Disorder Research Conference. It's coming up in two weeks. We've got 35 plus research presentations and all the profits from the event go to fund the DLD Research Grant. We've already given away $25,000 in the past two years. Pretty awesome, hey? Head to the DLDproject.com to register and thanks for your support.